1: And away we go. Episode four of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. A day on which we have more on the Bruce Allen heel turn on Dan Snyder. The very first guest for the Al Galdi podcast will be happening on today's show. Senior reporter AJ Perez of com, The man who broke the Bruce Allen heel turn story. Also broke the item of Jeff Bezos having interest in becoming A Washington football team owner will be getting to our chat with A.J. Perez coming up shortly. But, you know, it's also a day on which we have another Washington football team he'll turn to talk about, Alex Smith at 2, Alex A, sounding off to GQ.com about the way he was perceived, the way he was treated as the comeback truly got going this past offseason. And season. I mean, it's a little tricky with the Alex stuff because we haven't heard how he said what he said, but we know what he said. And if you're a hardcore fan of the team, I'm sure by now you are familiar with what Alex had to say to GQ. I got a lot to say about that. We'll be getting into that uh, coming up in just a bit. It was not a great Tuesday night for Washington, D.C. area sports. Capitals lose, Wizards lose, Hoyas lose. So uh, unlike all the good feeling we had on the podcast just a few days ago, uh, today is not necessarily going to be that kind of day when we're talking about some of our area teams, but talk about them we shall. And we'll do some more Nationals conversation on today's show. Both Juan Soto and Trey Turner speaking on Tuesday about their contract situations. And that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, Soto, he's not going to be a free agent for y- until years down the line. There's actual urgency, or at least there should be urgency when it comes to Trey Turner. Trey Turner is set to be a free agent after the 2022 season. And the good news is that he's not going to cost nearly what Juan Soto ultimately is going to cost. But the bad news, of course, is it's coming up. Like you're going to have to figure something out here sooner rather than later if you want to keep Trey Turner. Uh, for the long haul, I don't, I don't think that's a situation where you want the guy going to free agency. I think you want to try to lock him up and lock him up now. And hopefully the Nats are uh, in the midst of trying to do that. You can hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi as so many of you have. You can email me, continue to get a lot of great emails uh, regarding what we discuss on this podcast and regarding the podcast in general, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. We don't like to bring you down on this podcast, but of course, we can't not acknowledge the massive news in sports on Tuesday. That was this Tiger Woods accident. Uh, Tiger is recovering from lengthy surgery to repair what a doctor said on Tuesday night were significant orthopedic injuries to his right lower extremity. Uh, he was in a single car rollover crash on a steep roadway in a Los Angeles suburb. And, you know, as this thing was developing on Tuesday, I mean, first of all, you know, it's like classic Twitter, classic social media, classic modern news cycle of everybody is speculating about everything. And, you know, for a while, it was like, well, he was removed with the jaws of life. And then it turned out, well, no, actually he wasn't removed with the jaws of life. You know, he had all kinds of people talking about, well, was he high? You know, was he all pilled up in terms of getting in this single car accident? Well, no, there were no signs of impairment, at least according to the authorities, at least according to what we know right now. Now, was he speeding? That we don't know. And and that is something that's certainly going to be looked into because this apparently is an area where a lot of people do tend to speed. But, you know, seeing the footage of the car and of the wreck, I mean, initially, you know, we didn't know exactly what the injuries were. It was worrisome. Like, you didn't know if he was going to live or die, like, just to put it bluntly. And it, I I don't know about you, I, I had a lot of sort of like flashbacks to that January day, 2020, when Kobe died. And, you know, this is an all-time great athlete, and you have this situation where you literally are like, is he dead? I mean, what are we talking about here? And so, I I mean, it's going to sound odd, but I've never been so happy to hear about, well, he's undergoing leg surgery. It's like, okay, well, that's not going to be life-threatening, at least we don't think. I mean, it could have been so much worse. The fact that he is recovering, that he was awake, responsive, You know, in the hospital room, like, okay, he's gonna make it. Now, what this means for his golf career, who knows? You know, the condition of his leg here, who knows? Uh, the doctor referred to Tiger as having suffered a fracture in which the bone was broken into more than two pieces, which of course just sounds nasty. And also that this was an open fracture situation. Open meaning a break in the skin. So, it does not sound good. Like I said, we have no idea what this is going to mean for Tiger, the golfer, long term. But the guy's alive, you know, and he did not suffer like some kind of neck injury or spine injury or skull fracture, you know, brain damage. I mean, like this could have been so bad. Uh, so thank God, at least, you know, from the standpoint of it looks like he'll be OK and live uh, we are there with Tiger. Now, exactly how this happened and what this may mean, who the heck knows, but it's kind of pointless to speculate at this point. But get well soon, Tiger. I mean, I was thinking about this, and I'm sure this is true for a lot of you listening. Tiger Woods is on the short list of the greatest athletes of my lifetime. I mean, I, I think about myself, right? I, I would say, I mean, I'm 41, so I'd say Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods. Like, boom, right there. Three most prominent, most successful athletes of my lifetime. Like he's on that list and he may not be number three. You know, I mean, there's certainly a discussion there. So get well soon, Tiger, from the Al Galdi podcast and from everyone listening to this podcast right now. I feel safe in uh, speaking uh, for all of you when it comes to that. All right. Uh I love some of the things I get from you guys. And principle among them was this on Tuesday. Tweet from a man, Eric. How you going to go through a Wizards-Lakers recap and not use the LeBron James soundbite. Come on, man, more effects. Email from Joe on Tuesday. I know this might be a big ask, but in your wizard segment, I kept waiting for your LeBron James soundbite, one of my favorites. I love it. You guys are calling for your own soundbites. That is outstanding. That is outstanding. And you know what? Shame on me for not making usage of my Bron Bron soundbite in talking about that glorious Wizards win at the Lakers. So especially with the Wizards having lost late Tuesday night at the Clippers, why don't we go ahead and do this right right now? Because it was the previous night, Monday night, that the Washington Wizards won five straight for the first time since January, February 2018. And it was a victory at the reigning defending champion Los Angeles Lakers who just happened to have on their team LeBron James.
0: LeBron James.
1: as in the king
0: LeBron James.
1: as in Bron Bron
0: LeBron James.
1: as in la Le travel
0: LeBron James.
1: very good very good I feel much better now I feel like we're all caught up now in terms of playing our proper sound bites all right let's get into it more juicy stuff when it comes to the Washington football team So if you listen to episode two of this podcast, the Monday installment of the podcast, I gave to you my five off-season quarterback commandments for the Washington football team. Commandments that were delivered to me from the heavens. And the first off-season quarterback commandment for Washington that I proclaimed was thou shalt part ways with Alex Smith. And I now feel even more strongly about that commandment. I now feel like there's even further oomph behind that commandment, and that has to do with what came out on Tuesday. Alex Smith, in an interview with Clay Skipper for GQ.com, delivered by far his most pointed words as a Washington player. Now, we're gonna read to you what Alex said. There is no audio, at least publicly available audio, of what Alex said. I do think that that's significant because how you say what you say matters a lot with this stuff. So we are kind of limited in terms of interpreting what Alex was truly trying to get at. But let's be honest with some of this. I mean, I don't know how much interpreting you really need to do. So here's the crux of what Alex had to say in terms of what we're getting at here. So regarding the comeback, Alex Smith said, and I quote, so there was a very small group of people that actually thought that I could do this. I think the rest of the world either doubted me or they patronized me. Yeah, that's really nice that you're trying. When I decided to come back, I definitely threw a wrench in the team's plan. They didn't see it, didn't want me there, didn't want me to be a part of it, didn't want me to be on the team, the roster, didn't want to give me a chance. Mind you, it was a whole new regime. They came in, I'm like the leftovers, and I'm hurt, and I'm this liability. Heck no, they didn't want me there. At that point, as you can imagine, everything I'd been through, I couldn't have cared less about all that. And then in the transcription of the interview, bracketed is the italicized laughs. So he's saying this, and he's laughing, all right? But continues, Alex, whether you like it or not, I'm giving this a go at this point. I mean, they tried to put me on PUP, which, of course, is the physically unable to perform list for two weeks. Then they tried to IR me. I felt like I still hadn't had my fair shake at that point. I wanted to see if I could play quarterback and play football, and I feel like I hadn't been given that opportunity yet to find that out. It's like getting this close to the end line of a marathon, and they're telling you that you can't finish the race. It's like, F that. See, if I was cursing on the podcast, I would have said the actual word, which he said in the interview. But no, we'll just say F that. (laughs) I'm finishing this thing. At least I'm going to see if I can. So I'm thankful we worked through all that stuff. But no, it wasn't like open arms coming back after two years. Like I said, new coaches, new faces. And I think I definitely surprised a lot of people that never thought I would even be trying it. End quote. So like I said, there is some wiggle room for, well, you know, there's the part where he laughs and you do like to hear how he says what he says. But with some of this stuff, I mean, come on, I don't know how much interpreting you really need to be doing. I mean, he says early in this passage (laughs) That I just read to you, they didn't see it, didn't want me there, didn't want me to be a part of it, didn't want me to be on the team, the roster, didn't want to give me a chance. I mean, you know, that's pretty blunt and upfront and pretty clear what he's trying to get across when he says that. Later on in the passage, he says, no, it wasn't like open arms coming back after two years. So this is a shot. I mean, I don't think there's really any wiggle room with that. Okay. We can debate like the degree to which this is a shot, but this is a shot and it's a shot at Ron Rivera. Okay. Now he doesn't say the name Ron Rivera, but you know, that's who he's talking about. There was no Martin Mayhew. There was no Marty Herney. There was no Chris Polian. Like this was Ron's show. At this time last year, it was Ron and his coaches, you know, and you know, Kyle Smith was a part of things, but Kyle Smith wasn't making the decision on Alex Smith and whether he was going to be on the roster or how he was going to be on the roster in terms of would it be IR, would it be Pup, would it be the active roster? That was Ron. That was all Ron. Alex right there, point blank period, is taking a shot at Ron. And we're not used to this with Alex, right? I mean, Alex is one of the most polite, politically correct you know, comes across as nice guys as you'll ever see. And this really is a departure from the Alex that we've come to know. There's no question about that. So just like that part of this certainly stands out. This shot that Alex took at Ron Rivera in this interview with GQ. Now, specific to what Alex is complaining about, all right, and I'll I'll get to the Alex-Ron dynamic more on it in just a moment here. But specific to what Alex is complaining about, i.e., you know, they didn't really want me here. They didn't want me to be a part of this. It wasn't like open arms coming back after two years. I do think this is one of these situations in which both sides can be right. I don't think this has to be a scenario where you're like, well, boy, Alex is so right and Ron was so wrong or vice versa. And you know, Alex really needs to just shut up because Ron was 100 percent right. I can understand totally where each side of this was coming from, okay? If you're Alex, you are an uber-competitive athlete. You are very much a driven, goal-oriented person. We all know that the high-level athlete loves to do the thing where it's me against the world and, you know, my back's against the wall and you're all against me and I'm going to prove all of you wrong. And so I think there's a big part of that going on here with Alex Smith, all right? I mean, never forget the famous story of Michael Jordan making up a diss by LeBradford Smith in order to torch LeBradford Smith and the Bullets many years ago. Like these high-level athletes, they're sick in the head. They'll come up with anything to motivate themselves. So I can understand Alex, instead of trying to look at things from the Washington football team's perspective, simply saying, well, you guys doubted me. You guys counted me out. I get that. And that's probably a big part of why Alex was able to come back because he is so driven because he has that mindset because he knows how to motivate himself and fuel himself and, you know, get himself up for all of the rehab work that he had to do in order to come back from the 17 surgeries on the right leg. So I can understand where Alex is coming from, but you're not paying attention and you don't have a clue if you don't understand where Ron Rivera was coming from with a Washington football team was coming from. Here you are, you're Ron Rivera, you're a new head coach. You're taking over a complete mess that was this franchise. You're looking at a quarterback situation with extreme uncertainty, you know, with a guy in Dwayne Haskins who, yes, did end his rookie season with back-to-back quality performances, but there was still a lot to be determined with old Wayne Wayne as we went into that 2020 offseason. You didn't know what you had to any extent beyond Dwayne Haskins uh, at the quarterback spot. And you looked at Alex Smith and you are like, well, he's coming off this horrific right leg situation. The last season in which he played 2018, yeah, the record was good, but his specific performance, his personal performance really was not. I mean, what are we supposed to do here? Count on this guy, especially when you consider the sizable cap hit that he possesses. So I get where Ron was at, okay? And remember how it went with Alex. It's very easy to forget the specifics in terms of the timeline, of the Alex recovery, okay? So late July, Washington put Alex on this active, physically unable to perform list. The next day, Ron Rivera during a Zoom press conference said that Alex had not passed his football physical. So as recently as late July, early August, Alex could not pass his physical. So what is Ron supposed to do? Say, nah, that's okay. He'll be good to go. Like, no, 17 surgeries on the right leg can't pass his physical? Like, Yes, Ron is not not going to be all gung-ho about Alex playing. Yes, Ron is going to have doubts about Alex being a part of the team. Now, to Alex's credit, right? He battled. And on August 16th, Washington activated Alex off that active, physically unable to perform list. Alex ended up making the season opening 53-man roster, and then we were off and running, right? But even then, even then, the comeback was still taking place at, you know, this very deliberate pace. Alex, remember, was inactive. Weeks one through four of the season. Alex comes into a game for the first time in week five, that home loss to the Rams, and he looks awful in the game. Remember, right? Now it was a rainy day at FedEx Field, that's true. But remember what happened in the second half of that game with Alex at quarterback. Washington in the second half of that game, that 30-10 loss to the Rams in week five, had minus six total net yards of offense. Minus six yards of offense in the second half. Alex in that second half went four of 11 for two yards. Four of 11 for two yards and got sacked five times. Now in that game, famously, the leg held up and Aaron Donald was on Alex's back and the leg held up. So that was the good news from that game. But the performance was putrid. And remember this too about that game. Kyle Allen was cleared to come back into the game. And he didn't. Ron kept Alex in the game. So the idea that like Alex was done dirty by Ron or Ron, you know, didn't believe in Alex. A, I don't blame Ron for having doubts about Alex being able to play, but B, if Ron hated Alex so much or didn't want to give Alex a shot, why did Alex stay in the game in week five when Kyle Allen had been cleared to come back in? So like, I, you know, I'm not really interested in hearing about, oh, evil Ron, you know, he wasn't very nice to Alex. I don't know that Ron loves Alex and we'll get to that in a moment here, but Alex, I think was treated just fine by Ron and by the Washington football team. And I 100% get where Ron was coming from. And think about this too, given the major complaints slash questions about the Washington football team's medical staff and training staff over the previous 12 months, how bad of a look would it have been had Washington played Alex and the leg not held up or had Washington rushed Alex and the leg not held up. Like I get playing the Alex Smith thing conservatively for a lot of different reasons. Okay. You're coming off the firing of Larry Hess. You're coming off all these allegations against the training staff and the medical staff from, you know, Trent Williams and Quinton Dunbar and Morgan Moses and others. And you know, not that everything those people said is totally valid. Okay. Because we know now. Trent Williams is not exactly a bastion of credibility, but there was enough smoke out there to where, yeah, you had to wonder what the heck had been going on. And, you know, they fired Larry Hess. It's not like they said, no, Larry Hess has been awesome and we're going to keep him on board. Like, no, they got rid of him, okay? They turned over their training staff. They brought in the guy, Ryan Vermillion, who had worked with Ron Rivera for years in Carolina. So I get totally where Ron was coming from when it came to this. But the biggest thing to me with the Alex Smith GQ comments is the following. The comments to me are in no small part a result of the way that Ron Rivera has been talking about Alex Smith. And I brought this up on the Monday podcast. I actually brought this up with uh, Kevin Sheehan on his podcast this past Saturday. It has become impossible to ignore the way Ron has been talking about Alex Smith in terms of Alex being on the team in 2021. Alex is, of course, under contract for 2021. And yet he has been talked about as if he's a free agent. Okay. Go back to this past season. All right. First of all, season is still going on. Alex is back to playing for the Washington football team. And Ron, unprompted in one of these Zoom press conferences, raises the idea of Alex potentially retiring after the season. Nobody said to Ron, Hey, is Alex a certainty to come back to play in 2021 or is Alex going to continue his career beyond this season? Ron brought up and he said it was something along the lines of like, well, we got to see if he wants to continue doing this. It's like, whoa, whoa, what, huh? Like, I mean, it made sense. You're like, well, he is older and he is coming off, you know, the 17 surgeries on the right leg, but kind of odd for a coach in season to raise the issue of his quarterback retiring, but okay, fine. That was during the season later in the season. Okay, very late in the season, December 30th, the Wednesday before the week 17 NFC East clinching win at Philadelphia on Sunday Night Football. Ron Rivera, as we are all monitoring the Alex Smith, quote unquote, right calf injury. All right. And we have to put that in quotation marks because it turns out that was not a right calf injury. Alex has said it was a bone contusion. But anyway, as Washington is on the doorstep of clinching the division with a 7-9 and record, as Washington is getting ready for this big showdown at the Eagles, who of course ended up tanking in the fourth quarter uh, in that Washington win. Ron gets asked about Alex Smith, and he gets asked a question that really was an opportunity to sing the praises of Alex. I mean, it was at this point, truly, that Alex Smith's stock was perhaps never higher, at least in terms of the perception of him. Now, he had missed the previous two games due to the injury, um, I think there was a feeling at that point, I know I certainly had it, of, man, I don't know about having him back for 2021 if, you know, this right leg is going to continue to be an issue. Although remember, Alex does insist that the right leg injury had nothing to do with the 17 surgeries. But whatever the case may be, Alex was viewed very favorably at this point. And again, you're getting ready for your biggest game of the season, a chance to clinch the division at the Eagles. Ron gets asked a question about, boy, Ron, would you would you be here if not for Alex Smith? <laughs> and what does Ron do? Ron doesn't sing the praises of Alex. No, he doesn't trash Alex, but he certainly does not say, "Yeah, I tell you, Alex has meant so much to our team. Ron takes that question as an opportunity to sing the praises of Kyle Allen and to say, "Mm, yeah, I think we would be here if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy. Take a listen. Here's the exchange in its entirety. Again, this past December 30th, the Wednesday before the NFC East clinching win, at the Eagles in Week 17.
2: Hey, Ryan, and maybe this is a little simplistic a question, but could you have been in this position this year right now where you are, you know, for the playoffs without Alex? Well, if if we had a healthy uh, uh, Kyle Allen, uh, I think we could have. I
0: really do. I, I think we could have. And, and a big part of the reason is is because Kyle, you know, he he he's very similar in Alex in terms of his, his abilities. You know, he's got the same kind of arm. It makes good decisions like, like Alex does. It's got good footwork. Um, it, it, I think we could have been. I, I do.
1: All right. So again, it's not like Ron just completely smashed Alex with that answer, but he sure didn't go out of his way to praise him. And he used a question about Alex, a question in a lot of ways designed to sing the praises of Alex and instead sung the praises of Kyle Allen. Then came that win at the Eagles, and Alex starts, and he plays for the game in its entirety, and he doesn't really play that well, but he obviously ends up playing well enough. Uh, Eagles, remember, ended up tanking in the fourth quarter. Doug Peterson benching Jalen Hurts in favor of Nate Sudfeld. Washington still only ends up winning the game 2014. Ron Rivera after the game, right? Washington has won the NFC East. Alex Smith has returned from his two-game absence. Ron admits to having actually considered benching Alex in the game. Quote, I thought about it. I thought it worked out well enough. End quote. And that was a very accurate assessment of the quarterback play that night. But it was a little surprising, I thought, that Ron actually said, yeah, I did consider benching Alex in the game, but he played well enough. Not long after that, this past February 4th year, earlier this month, Ron went on the Kevin Sheehan show on the Team 980. Got asked about the likelihood of Alex being on the Washington football team for 2021. Ron, quote, I think that, you know, the chances are there. (laughs) We have to go through this process. And quote, it's been one sign after another that Ron Rivera is just not all that enthused about Alex being back on the team in 2021. And I don't blame Ron one bit. I'm not enthused about Alex being back on the team in 2021 and as I've said this is not anything personal you know it's just where are you going with Alex Smith and I think Alex who is very smart has heard all this stuff is aware of all this stuff I'm sure there have been maybe some things behind the scenes where Alex has felt like you know he's not necessarily getting all the love from Ron and I think Alex fired back I think Alex struck back with these GQ comments You know, these comments reeked of someone who feels like I'm probably not going to be back here. I'm going to speak my truth. I'm going to say things the way that I have experienced them. So, I mean, Alex has every right to do that. I get why he would feel that way. But like I keep saying, I totally understand where Ron's coming from. And if you're telling me to pick a side, I'm team Ron. I, I am team football team in this situation. I mean, both sides can be right because each side kind of has its own interests and its own way of viewing things. But I'm more interested in the Washington football team, not in the career of Alex Smith. But I think 100% these GQ comments from Alex, they're fueled by the way Ron has been talking about Alex. I don't think you're paying attention if you don't think that to be the case. And so that brings me to this. And again, we discussed this via commandment number one on Monday's podcast, but it's done. It's over. It's time to part ways. I think it's very clear Alex does want to play in 2021. Uh, he's, he's basically said as much or it's been suggested as much multiple times now that this is going to be happening. Remember Alex in that uh, 60 minutes piece on him January 17th said that he felt emboldened by his comeback and that he could still play in the NFL. Uh, ESPN's Jeremy Fowler Valentine's Day on Center said that he had been told that Alex wants to continue playing football and is leaning that way. Alex was on this 10 questions with Kyle Brandt podcast that dropped on February 17th said that his ability to play in the 2020 season, quote, fueled me even more than that I can roll and keep going, end quote. So we've had a lot of stuff already that suggests Alex wants to keep playing. We've had not really that much lately that says that Alex doesn't want to keep playing other than some official declaration that he wants to keep playing. And that's fine. If he wants to keep playing, he should keep playing. I'm not one of these people who wants to be telling him, well, no, you can't play or you need to retire. You know, think about your leg. Think about your family. He should do what he wants to do. And if he wants to keep playing, more power to him. I just don't want it to be here. And I don't think Ron Rivera wants it to be here. And I think Alex Smith knows that. And that's where I think a lot of this sentiment is coming from in terms of why Alex spoke as he spoke in this interview with GQ.com. Alex Smith in 2020, had success. He went 5-1. and You can't just ignore that. He definitely brought things to the table that you could not quantify. And he had good games. I mean, it's not like he never had any good games. He did have good games. His work in the second half of that win at Pittsburgh was terrific. But the overall body of work from Alex wasn't anywhere near close to being good enough. Alex Smith, over eight games, finished with six touchdown passes versus eight interceptions. That's not good. He had a yards per pass attempt of 6.3. Not good. He had a total QBR per ESPN of 34.8. Not good. Alex had three rushing yards over his eight games. Three rushing yards. He was not a run threat at all, okay? And you could say, well, you know, he actually wasn't that bad at escaping pressure. He had his moments escaping pressure. He had three freaking rushing yards over eight games. When Washington would do those read option looking runs with Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick with Alex in the game, to me, they weren't real read option runs because Alex never kept the ball. He was never a true threat to keep the football. I mean, for comparison's sake, Taylor Heineke played in two games in the 2020 season. He had 68 rushing yards. Alex Smith over eight games had three rushing yards. And it's not that every starting quarterback has to be RG3 in 2012, but in today's NFL especially, I think you want your guy to be able to move and to be able to threaten a defense to at least some extent with his legs. Alex was zero threat with his legs this season, and I don't see that changing. In 2021. And here's something else about Alex in 2020. And I know like it sounds like I'm really just destroying Alex right now. And I don't really mean for it to sound this way, but we're trying to just speak facts here and deal with exactly what the reality is. The thing about Alex and him never turning the football over, right? That, that was something in 2018 that was said a bunch. Like, well, maybe his overall numbers aren't great, but man, he never throws interceptions. He never turns the football over. Alex Smith in 2020 over eight games had his highest interception rate in a season since 2009. He had an interception rate, that's simply interceptions divided by pass attempts, of 3.17. Do you know that Dwayne Haskins' interception rate for the 2020 season was 2.9, okay? Alex had a worse interception rate than old Wayne Wayne had in 2020. And I know some of the picks weren't Alex's fault, but the thing of, well, he doesn't turn the football over, no, actually he kind of did. He kind of did. He had eight picks over eight games. He nearly had a disastrous loss fumble in week 17. Washington is trying to run out the clock with a 2014 lead. Alex gets charged with a fumble that he thankfully recovered off an exchange with Chase Roulier. I mean, you can't ignore this stuff. I wish Alex Smith the best comeback player of the year. It's the single greatest comeback in sports history in terms of what he overcame with the 17 surgeries on the right leg but it's time to say bye-bye, okay? It's time to part ways, and I think these comments he made to GQ.com highlight that big time. Now, to a special guest. All right, so on Tuesday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast, we spent a good chunk of time talking about a very interesting report from AJ Perez of sports.com a report that came out on Monday regarding two significant items in the Washington football team's ownership turmoil. Item number one was that Jeff Bezos' attorney had spoken with the Baltimore-based sports investment banking firm Mogan Company, which had led the effort to sell the minority owner stakes in the Washington football team, i.e. billionaire Bezos, Uncle Jeff, is interested in becoming an owner of the Washington football team. The second item in this piece was that Bruce Allen had turned heel on Dan Snyder and that the infighting with Dan Snyder on one side and the three minority owners, Dwight Scharr, Fred Smith, and Robert Rothman on the other side and the alleged smear campaign that Scharr helped to fund, at least according to Dan, that Bruce Allen had been to some extent a part of all this, at least according again to to Dan Snyder in court documents obtained by FrontOfficeSports.com. Here to help us further unpack this and understand this is senior reporter AJ Perez of FrontOfficeSports.com. And he, by the way, lives in the area. So familiar is he when it comes to all of the drama with our Washington football team off the field. AJ, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. How are you? That's not bad. Ada I appreciate you coming on very much. So in terms of the Bezos thing, and we'll get to the Bruce thing coming up shortly here, but the item that you had, that Jeff Bezos' attorney had spoken with this Baltimore-based sports investment banking for a Moog & Company, uh, which had led the effort to sell the minority owner stakes in the team. Do we know the specific nature of the conversation between Bezos' attorney and Moog and & Company?
2: No, we don't. We know uh, it happened sometime during the, uh, well, this, this all, this all goes back to the case in India where Dan Snyder uh, sued a Indian media company for um, creating these false, all these false media, false uh, social posts, false stories about uh, linking him to Jeffrey Epstein. I, I, I live here in, in, uh, in the DC region, um, and I, I was at the hockey rink, like right, right before the, I think it was the first or the second, one of the two Washington Post stories came out and like everybody was talking, hey, I hear about this. But, Jeffrey Epstein, while I'm like, what, where are you getting this stuff from? Yeah. Well, apparently, the, the, according to, to, to Dan Snyder's attorneys, it was all linked to this India media company who's been, I guess, allegedly known for doing a lot of these shady things. Um, and so that this all goes back to that. This is all part of the discovery in that case. Um, you can use the U.S. federal court system to, to aid in your investigation uh, for a foreign lawsuit, And Snyder's done that, has gone after several... People here in the United States, including John Moog, who is uh, Mogan Company, who he was basically John was one of the instrumental people getting the Ravens to, to Baltimore, um, and, and and has since he has a he has a pretty he's pretty well respected in the industry of owners looking to sell all or part of their pro sports team. So John's one of the go-to guys there, um, and uh, there. So John was hired by the um, by the three co-owners to sell the the forty percent share of their team, um, and this this is basically they. They got, uh, according, I'm just kind of reading the tea leaves here, but, um, they've, from, from the discovery and, and the, um, the subpoena that was issued by the judge in Maryland to John Moog, who was based outside Baltimore, um, they were able to get phone records and emails and texts, and this is where this all comes from. So both the Bezos stuff and also the Bruce Allen, uh, I that was, was in my story yesterday.
1: Yeah, I mean, logically speaking, right Bezos's attorney wouldn't be contacting Mogan Company if Bezos didn't have an interest in buying some or all of that minority share that's for sale, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's, I think
2: it's it, it's pretty easy to imply
1: that um, and we kind of we
2: as a journalist had kind a of tiptoe around it, but there's really no other reason that there, they, there, there'd be that type of conversation.
1: In your research and investigating and in all this, do you have any sense of whether Dan Snyder is wanting Jeff Bezos as a minority partner or would be welcoming of Bezos in that role?
2: Um, if you go back to Jason Lock and Forrest's story from November 2019, which I linked to, uh, where, where basically they said they were hanging out, you know, they were getting because you know, Mike Bezos bought a huge mansion here in D.C. and he's renovated it, spent millions and millions of dollars. Obviously we know about the Washington Post, which he owns, and then HQ too uh, being in, in Arlington. Um, so there's a lot of things like, is this the next step? Uh, whether I'm not sure is Bezos the type of guy that would want to be a minority. That's another, that's another issue. And I think he's, he's one that's kind of, we've seen him and, and on how he's, you know, turned Amazon into what it is, you know, is that, is there, I don't want to speak for Bezos, but I don't know. I've never talked to him. Um, but is that, you know, is he the type of individual who would want just to, you know, just to have a chunk or does he want to manage an interest in in a team? So, and there's been, there's been talking of Seattle uh, Seahawks, other, you know, there's not too many teams pop up for sale. So, um, but up until, up until this court filing, we didn't really have an indication that he was interested in the Washington football team.
1: With the potential sale of this minority stake, I mean, they clearly can't stand each other. The two sides you would think Dan Snyder ultimately does want a new minority partner or partners with whom he has a good relationship. I mean, Bezos, it's a strange deal, right? Because he does own the post, and the post for years has been like at war with Dan Snyder. So there's that dynamic to all this. Do you think a potential motivation for Dan to welcome Bezos into the ownership group would be a thinking of, well, if I get the owner of the post as part of ownership here, that might lead to more favorable coverage from the post. Do you think that is a, a fair or plausible way of looking at things if you're Dan?
2: Yeah, maybe if you're Dan, maybe. Um, but I, as a journalist, I don't think uh, – I, I know some of the reporters have been doing these stories for years, and I would not – I don't question their motivations. Um, I think this they're just doing their jobs. I don't – whether it's being directed I, – I, you know, there's always rumors that, you know, that there's been rumors since i covering this that uh, uh, – you know, they, that Bezos is trying to influence coverage, but there's really, there, there's a, from what I can tell, a pretty decent firewall there. Um, Bezos is hands off at least as far as editorial goes. Um, but yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe may implicitly. I mean, maybe it's kind of more of a, an unconscious thing. <laughs> will, will, will journalists go easier on the team? I don't know if I would. I'd just <laughs> but, but, uh, there, there is that kind of thought in the back of your head, you know, if Bezos owns a team or owns part of the team, do you go as hard? And I don't, that's, you know, I don't think, I don't think that's in the mind of, minds of most journalists, at least, least intentionally.
1: Regarding Bezos just joining the NFL as an owner in general, is there any reason that the NFL wouldn't want Jeff Bezos as an owner?
2: No. I mean, uh, they, I've, Jerry Jones has talked about it, uh, openly. You know, he's, uh, having, having Bezos on, uh, or having Amazon, sorry, as, as a, as a partner, um, Already, is that with the Thursday Night Football package and, and, and other initiatives, has been uh, I think it's been, a, been a, a big plus for the league. I know streaming's still coming around; it's gaining a lot of momentum though, um, especially with the cord cutters. You know, this we're going through NFL. NFL's going through some rights negotiations with all the partners right now, and we're going to see how it shakes out. I don't. We're, we're not at the time yet where it's going to go streaming only for any of the packages yet, but we're, go- we're but we're getting there. And as, as we see the cable. The core cutting pick up, um, you know, there's, the NFL is going to need another, you know, likely is going to need, uh, at least an alternative. Even if it's, even if it's just, a just a bargain against the networks. Yeah. Um they, the, 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 the NFL likes having Amazon and in turn, even though he's stepping down later this year as a CEO, uh, Bezos around.
1: So you live in this area, you know the way that Dan Snyder is perceived. The dream that so many Washington football team fans have had for years is the ouster of Dan Snyder, you know, the coup. That Dan is somehow removed as owner and that someone like Bezos becomes majority owner. We know Jeff Bezos has the money to become Washington's majority owner, but of course Dan has to either willingly sell or be removed as owner. Do you think that this is just a pipe dream, the idea that this Bezos stuff isn't just about minority ownership, but maybe ultimately becomes about him becoming the new majority owner. Is that a pipe dream or is that maybe more plausible than just like pie in the sky?
2: I don't know. I mean, it's Snyder's done. He's, you know, he's been an oh, no, owner what 20, 20, 21 years now. And I think a lot, the movies he's made over the last year have actually is something he probably should have done when he, when he bought the team. Yeah, for sure. The football people do the football stuff. Um, and we're kind of staying out of it. We know what he's done with the drafts. Um, and everything else. I think this is maybe, not, I don't know if it's, there's, there's no cause and effect here, but I think there's, I think S- uh, Snyder is, has, has realized that, you know, the way he was doing things for 20 years is not working. Um, and uh, I think that what we saw this season, even though they made the playoffs, but uh uh still losing record. Um, so they, I think they're I think there's a, uh, the the name change as well. It and I, It's the name change is huge, and I think like he, because he wants a new stadium, whether he's burned enough bridges to, to uh, around, you know, if he wants it in D.C. especially, um, that that uh, you know, will they negotiate with the outsider? I'm, they probably will. The Redskins are still a major franchise, the major franchise here, one of the most valuable sports franchises in the, in the entire world. Um, but know, yeah, I think it could, would it be easier if it was if he had a new start with a new owner. I'm not saying Bezos or somebody else, possibly. But, um, you know, I don't, being removed, I don't, you know, we, people talk about Richardson in Carolina, but he wasn't removed. He, he basically left before the investigation, uh, was concluded. And, um, and, uh, he was not, there's never been an owner forced out or else they would have first, first out Al Davis, first out Al Davis years ago before, well, you know, when he was moving the team down there in California. So.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the name issue there obviously is no name and it sure looks like there will not be a new name until at least the 2022 season. Do you think the value of selling these minority shares is increased by the fact that there isn't yet a new name? And so if you buy into ownership, you maybe have a role in the new name and the new branding or does not having a name not impact what you can sell this 40% minority share in the team for?
2: Um, I think I don't think I don't think the brand the the naming issue is is I don't think that comes into play. I think it's just more with economics. We're, we're we're here in the in a pandemic, um, and uh, you know they, everybody's taking a hit. Uh, the, we've seen the even before the pandemic uh, when fans were limited or not or couldn't go to the stadium at all this past season. Even before that, you know there's a lot of empty seats there at FedEx. You know that field was outdated when it when it opened yeah, when Jack Kent could, you know start broke ground on on, on that stadium. You know, lack of metro access, hard to get to, parking's awful. Um, you know, there's the traffic problem, obviously. So that's pretty, anywhere in D.C. is pretty bad. So, but it just, it was not, you know, Dan bought a team with a new stadium, a pretty new stadium, but it was pretty obsolete. And we've seen these huge, what, what they've done in Vegas and L.A. especially, it, it's been unbelievable. And we've seen several stadiums open that are so much nicer over the years
1: than FedEx. Yeah, for sure. There's no doubt about that. They've got to get that situated. One more thing in terms of trying to sell this minority share, because the reporting has been that Dan isn't interested in selling. So unless he is somehow removed, it doesn't look like he will be selling. And he actually, per the reporting, stood in the way of a group of investors from California who had offered $900 million for the minority owners, 40% stake in the team. So there also is this looming thing of the four major national television contracts in the NFL coming up. And CNBC had the item that the NFL is looking to double what it makes in terms of national TV money from $5 to $10 billion per year, which is just incredible, but seems like it's more than doable with the way the NFL is such a force in the television industry. Do you think that is going to substantially increase the minority share to where if you're Dan, you're kind of better off kicking the can down the road and not having any sale of a 40% share for now, wait till the new TV contracts are signed. And then you can maybe get a, you know, a bonanza in terms of the buy-in from a new owner. Do you think that's at all a a part of this?
2: It should be. I think uh, this is all caught up. You know, this is a different legal case. This is when the three co-owners sued sued Dan Snyder a few months back in, uh, uh, in federal court in Maryland. Um, And uh, the judge sent it back to arbitration, which is, which all own any owner co-owner minority owner principal owner in the nfl has has uh um an an arbitration a length they have arbitration language in 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 their contracts where they have to you know at least attempt a good faith effort uh to arbitrate um so it's 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 gone back to that you know dan's holding that up he has the right of first first refusal um and um that's gonna it could you know we don't know that but it's, it's all it it's all secret um Snyder's not talking, and they are not allowed to anyway. And the three co-owners aren't aren't talking either about where where that stands. But I think, yeah, this whole this whole thing is there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of things I've heard which I can't substantiate. Um, but it's you're right. If if they hold out, try to get more money. But also, you know, one of the theories. And this is basically me reading all these documents and talking to people. One of the theories is why, um, uh, why the why the co-owners, you know, would love Dan to sell? They're going to make a lot more money if if Dan sells the entire team, um, especially if it's the one huge owner who buys all of it, like Bezos, which is pretty much unheard of. You know these, you know, the, with these billion, several, multiple billion dollar valuations of, of these teams. So, uh, so that's that's another part of it. I think I think the co-owners probably love Dan to sell, um, um, and or. You know, they, they did line up those two, those two billionaires there in California to, to buy the 40%. That's being held up. So yeah, I think it's going to, you know, it's all, that's, that's a good question. You know, it, it's, but we're, we're talking about, you know, getting a lot more money per team on, on the next TV deal, but it's, uh, also we're, we're still, you know, these, these teams, we're still not, we, we don't even know this fall we're going to have full stadiums.
1: Talking with A.J. Perez, senior reporter at Front Office Sports, frontofficesports.com, with the major item the other day regarding the Washington ownership mess. So there was the Jeff Bezos part of this, and then there was the Bruce Allen part of this. And per court documents from this Dan Snyder defamation lawsuit, it comes out that Bruce Allen had had a number of phone calls, texts, and email exchanges with John A. Moog the uh, Baltimore-based financial consultant hired by the minority owners to spearhead a sale of their 40% stake in the team. And the contention from Dan's side of things is that Bruce was a part of this effort to have negative publicity directed at Dan. It's a fascinating twist in all this. I mean, Bruce obviously was employed by Dan for a decade uh, Bruce is one of the more reviled executives in D.C. sports history, but there was this, you know, extreme and weird loyalty that Dan had to Bruce. Obviously, Dan ultimately fired Bruce, and there did seem to be a real cooling off of their relationship as that 2019 season went on. I, I guess we'll start with this because, again, this is a contention from Dan's side. It's not like you are reporting this. You're reporting that Dan's side is saying this via these court documents. These 87 phone calls, these uh, very many email and text exchanges between Bruce and John Moog. Does Dan Snyder know what was said in these calls and emails and texts, or does he just kind of presume that because so many of these things happened, that Bruce was in cahoots with John Moog and the minority owners?
2: Well, this is kind of a funny thing. After the story ran, and I reached out to, to Bruce, uh, pretty quickly when we were, when we we're about to publish, um, I reached, I left a message at his house, um, didn't expect a response back. But since then, um, this is, I'm actually still verifying this by the time this podcast hits. It'll probably be, I'll probably have it nailed down. Um, at Mogan, and Bruce Allen go back a couple, a couple decades. Um, they actually, uh, from what I understand, um, and I'm getting this verified, they actually, um, Moog Mog was an expert witness, um, when Bruce, Bruce, uh, was with the Oakland Raiders, um, when the Raiders were being sued by, um, the Oakland Alameda County. Oh, really? Over, yeah. So that, that's where it started. And I, you know i'm still trying to verify that i i have i have, I have court records that list both and you know being being an expert witness um at, at the same time um uh bruce allen was was uh an executive with the raiders so that's kind of you know they whether i'm trying to trying to figure out how close they were because they this relationship from i from what one of my tipsters told me is has gone back you know a long time and they've kept in Kept in touch. Now, whether it picked up after he, after he got fired in December 2019, and if you saw, you know, 22 plus hours of conversations from January 2020 until, uh, November, uh, mid November of last year, you know, that, where, who knows? But there, if they exchanged texts and emails, I think, I, you know, I think, uh, there's, that's probably likely they, they, if they talk this much, I'm sure they text, and I'm sure some of the stuff was, uh, you know, about, about Dan, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just a, it's just a guess, but I guess pretty much a, uh, a logical, it would be
1: a, a fairly good guess on my, on, on anyone's part. Do we know though via the documents what was said in these exchanges or just that these exchanges took place? Just that they
2: took place. Uh, all the, the, there were, there was an email exchange and a text exchange, but we know Moog was texting, texting and emailing somebody. We didn't, they redacted the part of who the recipient or who the other person was in the in the conversation both the text and the email so there's really no way to tell who he was talking to um and uh but yeah they've moog Mo had to turn over a lot of information um um and he's actually and side of the team wants more from them. and his and moog has some good lawyers lawyers on on his side as well who are fighting it you know they've uh, Snyder's team's been, been asking for a forensic, forensic, um, examination of all of John Moog's iPad, of his wow. laptops, of his, his iPhone, you know, all this stuff, because Moog's like, we don't have it. And, you know, and Moog denied everything. Moog denied he, he, had, he had any, he had any, um, uh, he had any, um, uh, involvement in the misinformation campaign that he, that, or, or that he was, you know, you know trying to badmouth or Snyder's, so force him out, all that stuff. He's He's denied all that, and, and, I, and it's, it would, be, would not be good for John's business to to, to be doing that. Just to, to you know, not, especially if he was part of this misinformation campaign. That'd be, if that got around, and, and your business is selling selling uh, minority stakes and teams to owners who value privacy and value um, you know secrecy uh, when it comes to negotiations, you know that's going to hurt your business.
1: No doubt. And, you know, with this misinformation campaign and what Dan Snyder clearly believes was a smear campaign that was funded in part by Dwight Shaw and now this apparent Bruce Allen role and everything. I mean, not to make Dan out to be some kind of sympathetic figure because he is far from that, but it's not like they are halos over the heads of these three minority owners, you know, and, and it, it feels like it may have been, you know, bad versus worse in this situation. We'll, we'll try to figure out who's bad and who's worse. Now, you in December reported that the NFL had hired the former U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch to lead an investigation into this feud between Dan Snyder and the co-owners. What do you think the NFL is trying to get to the bottom of specifically with this feud? Like, who's at fault, whether people should be removed? What, what do you think is the goal of this Loretta Lynch-led investigation by the league?
2: Man, that's kind of, uh I think it's, it's kind of like the other investigations we've seen over the years, like the Flake Gate, um, we saw, and other, other investigations of the sort Richardson, I guess, too. Um, it just, I think that part of it's the leak, the leak protecting itself, um, and, and, and the SHIELD, because, you know, they're obviously have a lot to, might have a lot to lose, but they could, you know, it could tarnish the, you know, their brand a little bit if, you know, this stuff, especially with the, with the sexual harassment allegation, Including the alleged payoff, um, that was reported by the New York Times and Washington Post of a former, uh, a former, um, Washington football team employee. Yeah. Um, that was that uh, the alleged payoff was linked to what something you know, Snyder didn't deny it, but Snyder did. Um, I guess it was, it was linked to something with him there. Um, so I think it, it's another, it, the league doesn't want, and the owners don't want, uh, kind of these kind of, these kind of, uh, I'll say black guys, but they're they're not they're not this is not something they they want in the news about their owners owners doing it and that's why they're very protective of who they let in that's why trump never became an owner for example they having seen what he what he's done over the, over the last four or five years you know they they didn't want that that kind of distraction and that's a big thing we, we everybody talked about kaepernick and being a distraction you know this is a distraction and owners you know i have everybody that was coded language for kaepernick i think i think yeah, that, and, uh, very, I guess pretty much, I'll say that, um, even as a journalist, I guess pretty, pretty evident. But that's another thing. It's, it, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you're going to get more leeway as an owner, but you still can't be taken away, taken away the spotlight, um, with these kind of, you know, scandals.
1: There's no doubt about that. And it has been ugly. And I tell you, it gets more and more juicy and really nasty. I mean, the, the Bruce Allen part of this is fascinating. Uh, for so many different reasons. Great reporting, AJ. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. No problem, Al. All right. Sadly, we can delay it no more. Tuesday night was not a good night when it came to Washington, D.C. area sports. We'll start with the Capitals, who found themselves off to another slow start. And ended up losing in overtime. Did get a point and truth be told, we're lucky to get a point. A 3-2 overtime loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins at Capital One Arena. Caps dropped to 9-5-4 and on the year. Kasperi Kapanin, who was recently benched by the Pens, scores the game winning goal 143 into overtime from the left circle on a 2-on-1 rush during 3-on-3 play. And the thing that really bothers you with this game winning goal, the effort of Evgeny Kuznetsov and Jacob Vrana. Uh, Kuznetsov and Vrana are two of the fastest, if not the two fastest Capitals. They essentially gave up on the play. Uh They were way too slow in the Caps' offensive zone as the breakout was developing. Now, in fairness to each guy, okay, uh each guy was kind of deep into a shift, like 50 seconds or so into a shift. So I suppose you could say, well, you know, Goldie, fatigue was a factor and Kuznetsov did deal with COVID-19, so I don't know if there are still some lingering effects from that, but still, like I said, these are two of the fastest players on the Caps. They're on the ice in overtime for a reason. They're two of the better players on the Caps, right? Certainly two of the most skilled players on the Caps, and they just did not keep up, and the Penguins get the two-on-one rush, and Kapanen converts from the left circle, to beat VTech Vanacek. So very disappointed to see that. But truth be told, the game was not just about that goal. The Caps got dominated in the puck possession battle as they got off to, like I said, another slow start and never really truly got going. The Caps, per natural stat trick, just 45 five-on-five shot attempts to the Penguins' 57. The Caps had just 22 shots on goal to the Penguins' 37. You were minus 15 in the shots-on-goal battle in this game. And how about what happened over the first two periods? Caps just 15 shots on goal to the Penguins 30. The Caps got doubled up in terms of shots on goal over the first two periods. Uh, Alex Ovechkin had a bad night. No points. Just two shots on goal. Committed a first period interference on goalkeeper penalty. And it was interesting because Peter LaViolette, who has not been shy at all about shuffling his lines, did so again. Uh, this time he mixed up his centers. He actually had Lars Eller on the top line with Ovechkin and Tom Wilson, had Kuznetsov on the second line with Vrana and Connor Sheary, and had Nicholas Backstrom on the third line. When's the last time Nicholas Backstrom played a game as the third line center? Backstrom was there with Richard Ponick and TJ Oshie. And it's not like Backstrom's having a bad year. He's actually been one of the more productive Capitals. But Laviolette keeps doing this. He's mixing and matching, and I'm sure he has his reasons, but I kind of wonder about like, maybe it would make some sense to keep your line stable for a while and just kind of see where they end up going. But that was notable last night. Eller, your top-line center. Kuzi, your second-line center. And Backstrom, uh, your third-line center. But the slow starts really have become a problem for the Caps. Another bad start last night. You had the win over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon. A win in which you had to overcome a 2-0 nothing second-period deficit by scoring four consecutive goals. You had that total sleepwalking performance in that loss to the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena on Saturday afternoon, a four-one loss, Laviolette during his virtual post-game press conference after that game, quote, "We looked a step behind them. They looked quicker to me." End quote. I mean, the Caps have done well in terms of the overall results. I mean, they're nine-five and four. It's hard to complain about that, especially given all the absences and injuries the Caps have had to deal with already this year. But I mean, they don't play a full sixty minutes. It's very few full sixty-minute performances by the Caps so far this year and you very clearly did not get a complete game performance last night Caps special teams were brutal just one of two on the penalty kill o of two on the power play and the how ha- the Caps two power plays were awful the Caps their two power plays came in the first period the Caps did not register a single shot on goal during either power play and the Caps have had an excellent power play this season so I know you're gonna have an off night every now and again but how about that two power plays in the first period, they end up being your only two power plays for the game, zero shots on goal over both of your power plays. Uh, Vanacek, like I said, was in net, your cap starting goaltender for a 14th time in 15 games. Still no Ilya Samsonov. You know, I thought Vanacek was fine. He stopped 34, 37 shots. He stopped nine of the 10 high danger shots that he faced per natural stat trick. It's hard to complain too much about Vanacek. He is being leaned on so much so far this year. And one of the goals for the Penguins was like a classic that's hockey kind of goal. It was the Penguins' second goal of the game, tied the game at two. Jake Gensel from the right circle with his back to the net ends up scoring this goal. It was an even strength goal, 13:40 into the second period. He simply raised his stick, again, with his back to the net to deflect a shot from the right point by defenseman John Marino, that was going wide of the net. So Gensel is in the right circle. His back is to the net. Marino unleashes a shot from the right point. It's going wide of the net. Gensel just kind of throws the stick up. The puck ricochets off the stick. And ends up going past Vaniček. I mean, I know what you're supposed to do about that if you're Vitek Vanacek. But, like, that's hockey. So some of these goals are so flukish. <laughs> I mean, so ridiculous how they end up being scored. So, I mean, I thought Vanacek was fine. Caps were physical last night. I'll, I'll give them credit for that. They did out-hit the Penguins by a bunch, 31-15. But got to get off to better starts. And got to generate more offense. That's been an issue, too. They're not generating as much offense, the Caps, as you know they're capable Of uh, putting four, but again nine five and four, it it it, you can't be that angry about things, and you get another shot at the Pens Caps are home to Pittsburgh Thursday night at seven. We also have the Wizards playing on Tuesday night, and here you had our Wiz five game winning streak for the first time in three years, coming off a glorious one twenty seven one twenty four overtime win at the Los Angeles Lakers, another come from behind win. For the Wizards. They are at the Los Angeles Clippers last night, and the result was a classic Wizards dud. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. Wizards fall to eleven and eighteen, a one thirty-five-116 loss at the Clippers. And there's no other way to say it. This game was a major disappointment. The Wizards never led in the game. The Wizards lost the first quarter by 16-36-20 the Wizards in the second quarter trailed by 24 points. Now, Wizards did rally, did get to within five at 99-94 at the end of the third quarter, but they then allowed the Clippers to go on a 33-16 run. The Wizards defense was back to being atrocious. Clippers ended up putting up 135 points on 57.4% shooting, including 19 of 38 on threes. The Wizards wilted in the fourth quarter. Lost that fourth quarter by 14, 36-22. How about this in the fourth quarter? Clippers in the fourth, 8-12 on threes. Wizards in the 4th for 0-3 on threes. Not good. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly, Stephen A. The Wizards had no answer, no answer for Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, allowing them to combine for 62 points and go a combined 9-14 on threes. The Wizards got smashed in terms of second chance points, 17-2, including 12-0 in a first half in which the Wizards got out-rebounded by 18-30-12. Like I said, disaster. This game, a real disappointment from a Wizards standpoint. Wizards did shoot decently well, 53.4%, 11-20 on threes. You did get good games from Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. I mean, it's hard to complain too much about what they did in this game, Uh Beal did go one of five on threes, but 11 of 19 on his twos. He had 28 points, 10 assists, just three turnovers and four rebounds. Westbrook, another pretty good shooting night, at least for him. Uh You know, nine of 17 on his twos, just one on the threes. He had 20 points, 10 assists versus just three turnovers and nine rebounds. But Westbrook did have the worst plus minus in the game at minus 26, and all these guys were part of a defensive effort that wasn't anywhere close to good enough. Now look, playing at the Lakers and then at the Clippers, same arena, I get that, but back to back nights, that's one of the more difficult back to backs you're gonna have. The Clippers, as we speak on this Wednesday morning, second in the Western Conference at 23 and 10. The Lakers are third at 22 and 10. So those are two really good teams you faced over the last two nights, but it's just like, okay, the Wizards were 3 and 12, they go on this run, five-game winning streak, you're feeling good about them, they're playing better defensively, and they just end up laying, for the most part, a total dud in this game. Like, if it was competitive, at least you could respect that. In a lot of ways, too much of this game wasn't competitive, and so to me, that was disappointing. Uh, a positive, in addition to Beal and Westbrook, was Mo Wagner. Uh, I've mentioned this, Scott Brooks has tinkered with his lineup to where Wagner and Garrison Matthews now are starting game in. And game out they don't both necessarily play a lot but they are starting Wagner actually did end up playing a decent amount last night and he played well you know Wagner's capable he, Brooks he's kind of he kind of falls in and out of love with Wagner but Wagner in this loss of the Clippers 21 points on eight of 13 shooting seven rebounds five assists versus no turnovers and he did all this in just 25 minutes five seconds of playing time and Wagner was very good in the third quarter. Wizards, like I said, they did rally and they won that third quarter by 12 at 39-27. Wagner in that third quarter, 13 points on five of seven shooting, four assists, no turnovers and four rebounds. So it was good to see that. But you know, something like Davi's Bertons. I mean, again, it's largely a nothing game for Bertons. He did hit a couple of threes in that third quarter, but 0 for 2 on threes was Bertons over the other three quarters. So look, like I said, Wizards, great to have the five-game winning streak. You aren't going to win forever. I understand that. I recognize that. Uh Wizards continue the venture out west Thursday night at Denver at 9. Oh, by the way, one other thing with the Wizards, okay? And at, at this point, he's become largely a forgotten person. But Troy Brown Jr., who the Wizards, remember, took with the 15th overall pick in the 2018 NBA Draft, That same Troy Brown Jr., three minutes, 57 seconds of playing time off the bench last night, snapping a run of four consecutive DNP CDs. Don't lose sight of this. The Wizards appear to have completely blown it with this 2018 first round selection of Troy Brown. The last first round pick for Ernie Grunfeld as Wizards executive, not shockingly, not working out, at least not so far. The damn Washington Wizards. All right, one more loser in our trifecta of D.C. sports losers on Tuesday night, and then we'll get to some Nationals conversation. The Georgetown Hoyas lost again. Uh, Hoyas fall to 7-11 and overall, 5-8 and in a Big East, 70-57 loss to UConn at McDonough Arena. The game was tied at 44, more than nine minutes into the second half. The Hoyas then allowed UConn to end the game on a 26-13 run. And this, to me, is one of the real frustrating things about this Georgetown team. This Hoyas team, it's not like it sucks. Georgetown is in these games, and it's just that Georgetown doesn't win enough of these games, and Georgetown tends to, like, wilt as these games go on. Last night's game is a perfect example of that. If you recall the loss to then number three Villanova on February 7th, the Hoyas in that game, and again, this is against the number three team in the country at the time, the Hoyas lead deep into the second half at 67-66, then get outscored the rest of the game, 18-7, and end up losing at Nova, 84-74. Like, that could have been the win of the season for Georgetown. They're up by one, again, deep into the second half, and end up ending, getting outscored by 11 over the course of the rest of the game. There was the loss at Butler. On January 6th, sixty-three fifty-five. Hoyas in that game blew a nine-point second-half lead, were up 47-38, then got outscored the rest of the game 25-8, including allowing Butler to end the game on a 10-0 run. I can keep going. There was a loss to Marquette at McDonough on January 2nd, 64-60. Hoyas in that game blew an 18-point second-half lead. They led with less than 10 minutes left in the second half by 15, then got outscored the rest of the game 27-8. These games are winnable. It's not like Georgetown gets smashed game in and game out. Georgetown just doesn't close the deal. And I'll tell you something else about last night. Hoyas got demolished inside. Actually held UConn to just two of 11 on threes. But the Hoyas in the paint got outscored 50-24. The Hoyas had nine offensive rebounds to UConn's 18. And the Hoyas got carved up by the UConn point guard, R.J. Cole, a name that should sound familiar to those of you who know your D.C. hoops, because R.J. Cole was a stud at Howard for a couple of seasons. He was the MEAC rookie of the year, 2017-2018. He was the MiAC player of the year, 2018-2019. And he's a really good player now for the Huskies. R.J. Cole last night against the Hoyas, eight of 14 on twos, 17 points, seven assists, no turnovers, five rebounds, and six steals. It was a rough night for Georgetown defensively, and it was a rough night offensively. Georgetown goes four of 19 on threes, three Hoya starters, Javon Blair, Jamarco Pickett, and Dante Harris, a combined two of 16 on threes. So look, Georgetown to me at this point is all but done when it comes to the NCAA tournament. I mean, you never know what happens in the Big East tournament. That's true. But you know, Patrick Ewing is 0-3 in Big East tournaments as Hoyas head coach. Georgetown has three regular season games left. Uh, Hoyas are at DePaul Saturday at noon, but it's too bad because you feel like with the Hoyas, there is talent. You feel like there is opportunity, but you're staring right now at yet another NCAA tournament list season. This is Patrick Ewing's fourth season as Hoyas head coach. It's almost certainly going to end up being a sixth consecutive season in which Georgetown doesn't make the NCAA tournament. The Hoyas last made the NCAA tournament in 2015. It's 2021. I mean, it's been a while since the Hoyas have made the NCAA tournament. And, you know, it's funny. It's like the old Cinderella song. Don't know what you had until it's gone. A lot of complaints over the years about John Thompson third and the Princeton offense and all these early ousters from NCAA tournaments. And I get some of the complaints. But Georgetown at one point made the NCAA tournament eight times in 10 seasons under JT3. Eight times in 10 years. You're now right on the doorstep of not making the tournament for a sixth consecutive year. Some happier thoughts for you as we close out our Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. National spring training continues in West Palm Beach, Florida. We on Tuesday had the first full squad workout of national spring training, and you had near a 100% participation. Uh, Max Scherzer was not a participant as he deals with his ankle injury. Uh, two other pitchers were waiting to be cleared to join camp. Uh, two relievers, Javi Guerra and Jeremy Jeffress, who we talked about on Tuesday's podcast. Jeffress was just signed to a minor league contract with an invite to spring training. Maybe the most significant thing, though, from that spring training on Tuesday was both Juan Soto and Trey Turner speaking. They had their first Zoom press conference sessions with reporters. At spring training and a big time topic with each guy of course was the contract situation we talked a lot on Tuesday pod Tuesday's podcast about the Juan Soto scenario and how it's impacted or at least should be impacted by what the San Diego Padres have done with their shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr the mega extension for him 14 years 340 million dollars Tatis like Soto entering his age 22 season Here's what Soto had to say in terms of the prospect of signing a Tatis-like contract. Quote, for me, I was really happy for Tatis. I just congratulate him and everything. For me right now, I just try to come here and play baseball. I don't think about any of that. Anytime I come to spring, my mind is on baseball. I try to get my body in shape, get ready, and try to win another championship. End quote. Translation, I ain't telling you nothing. My agent is Scott Forrest and I'm going to head to free agency. The Nationals have got to come correct with Soto, like I said on Tuesday, and if they ever want to sign him to some Tatis-like deal where you buy out a bunch of the free agency years, you know, you pay a ton of money now in order to avoid potentially losing the player later or having to pay even more money later, you're going to have to give him something like what Tatis got, maybe even more than what Tatis got. I mean, it's tricky because Tatis is a better defensive player than Soto, does play a more premium defensive position as compared to Soto. So I don't know how much above 340 million you should have to go, but you're going to have to be in that neighborhood. You're going to have to be at $300 million plus to get a Juan Soto deal done. And if you don't come strong, if you don't act aggressively, then you're not going to get something done. I mean, it's already 50-50 whether he would even be open to this, given who his agent is in Scott Boris. But, you know, if you do one of your deferred money offers, if you say, well, what about, you know, $150 million or $200 million? I mean, I know it's a ton of money to you and me, but in baseball terms, it's not. And contracts like this Tatis contract reshape the market. And so if you're the Nats, I mean, you're a- at the mercy of the market. And the market now says, a stud player going into his age 22 season can command this kind of money. 14 years, 340 million, and I know the Nats would love to sign Soto, but I'm not sure truly how much they would love to do so. In other words, I don't know how high they're willing to go, and you're gonna have to go high to get that deal done. Now, the good news with Soto is it's not like he's gonna be a free agent this off season. Okay, you got a lot of time left in terms of team control. Soto's not scheduled to be a free agent until after the 2024 season. With Trey Turner, there is more urgency and there is more of an immediacy with Trey Turner's contract situation. Uh, Trey Turner is due to be a free agent after the 2022 season. So not after this year, but after the following year. Trey Turner is going into his age 28 season. Trey Turner is coming off an outstanding 2020 offensively. Uh, Trey Turner in 2020 led all major league shortstops in basically every meaningful batting category. On base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, batting average, OPS plus, weighted runs created plus, weighted on base average, and offensive war. One of the outrages of the baseball offseason was Trey Turner not being named as the Silver Slugger Award winner for National League Shortstops. Tatis got the honor. Silver Slugger is like the offensive version of Gold Glove. Silver Slugger is literally for the best hitter at each position in each league. Your defense isn't supposed to matter when it comes to Silver Slugger. Silver Slugger is all about offense, all about batting. Trey Turner quantifiably wasn't just the best hitting shortstop in the National League, he was the best hitting shortstop in baseball. And yet he didn't win the Silver Slugger Award for National League shortstops. I, I thought that was ridiculous. Anyway, Trey Turner yesterday uh, in his Zoom session Regarding his contract situation, quote, yeah, I would love to play here my entire career. I've said it in the past. I've always liked it here and don't think the grass is greener on the other side necessarily, but it's a business and things change. End quote. Yes, they do. I think Trey Turner does legitimately want to stay here. I think the Nats would like for Trey Turner to stay here. I think the good news of Trey Turner is it's not going to cost you 300 plus million dollars to re-sign him, but it's not going to cost you nothing. And if he has another season this coming year, like he had last year offensively, it's going to cost you a whole lot. Now with Trey Turner, we do have to say this. There are defensive issues. Uh, Trey Turner, I know locally gets talked all the time about, you know, being a great defensive shortstop. And I don't know that he's as bad as his numbers were in 2020, but understand the numbers for Turner defensively in 2020 were not good. Know this Trey Turner in the 2020 season was dead last among 20 qualified shortstops in defensive runs saved at minus seven. There was not a worse defensive shortstop in baseball last year per the defensive run save metric among qualified shortstops than Trey Turner. Now, it's a shortened season. Defensive metrics in a regular season are kind of dicey. In a shortened season, they are particularly dicey. So I wouldn't take the minus seven defensive run saved as gospel but he does not rate the same way other good defensive shortstops rate in terms of the advanced metrics. And shortstop is a premium defensive position. So the defense does need to be better, but we know the guy can hit We know the guy can run. You never hear anything negative about him in terms of like his attitude or anything like that. He's a guy you want under Buckler, okay? I mean, point blank, period. So you want to re-sign Trey Turner. And that's the thing with the Nats. Like at some point, you do need to start re-signing your key position players. I don't blame the Nats one bit for letting Bryce Harper go via free agency. I was not happy that Anthony Rendon left via free agency, but I kind of got where the Nats were coming from, from a standpoint of, you know, Rendon does get banged up and, you know, is going into his 30s. So I kind of was like, all right, I mean, I don't love this, but maybe you can do something else to ease the blow. The Nats didn't do that something else. I actually wanted them to sign Josh Donaldson. It's maybe good that they didn't, given the uh, injury issues that he's dealt with and dealt with again. In 2020. But the point is like, okay, Harper left, Rendon left. I mean, you're going to let Trey Turner leave too. Like we're going to keep doing this with these position guys. So I think Trey Turner does get re-signed. And I think the sooner the better with something like this, because you almost always end up paying more later as opposed to right now. And going back to Soto, I would just say this. Yes, he's got to be open to a long-term extension. You know, yes, him having Scott Boris as his agent doesn't help, but as the great financial philosopher, the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase said many years ago, everybody has a price.
0: And everyone, everyone has a price for the million dollar man.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Everybody has a price. So to whatever extent, it is unlikely that Juan Soto agrees to a Fernando Tatis long-term extension. You know, somewhere there is some number that will make Soto and Boris say yes. And your job as an organization, if you truly want to lock up the player, is to find that number and to present a contract that the player is willing to sign, i.e. don't do your deferred money thing. Come correct, come aggressive, be upfront, say we want you here, we want to lock you up here, and we're willing to commit to you for years to come. And it doesn't have to be a 14-year deal. It can be, you know, a 12-year deal. It can be a 10-year deal. It could even be something like a six-year deal that only buys out a few free agent years for Juan Soto. But there is some term and there is some amount of money that gets a deal done and that ensures that Juan Soto is here at least a few years into his free agency years. And I would love to see the Nats come hard and try to get that done. It's what a lot of the good organizations are doing in baseball these days. And the Nats are more than capable of doing this. Never forget, the learners are the richest ownership group in Major League Baseball. When it comes to finding that price, and there is a price. There's always a price. Everybody has a price. And everyone,
0: everyone has a price for the million-dollar man.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Everybody has a price. When it comes to identifying that price for Juan Soto, the Nats are more than capable of arriving at that. All right, that will do it for you and for me for now, keep the feedback coming at Algaldi on Twitter. You can email me the Al podcast at yahoo.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review if you haven't already. I appreciate the support so much. We have momentum with this podcast. We got to keep it going. I will talk to you on Thursday. Have a great rest of your Wednesday.